this evening as we come to uh, the outline of the book of Zechariah, you will see that I have only put part of the outline upon the board. I don't think this evening we shall get further than that. I am trusting that we shall reach that point. The book of Zechariah has a twofold major division. We can divide it, as we have already mentioned in previous studies, into two distinct portions, Zechariah 1 to 8 and Zechariah 9 to 14. Zechariah 1 to 8 we have entitled The Recovery of the Temple, the City, and the Land in the Light of the Coming Messiah. And Zechariah 9 to 14, we have entitled The Coming Messiah, His Reign, His Work, His Rejection, and His Final Enthronement. The first division can be subdivided into three. Zechariah 1 from verse 1 to verse 6. Zechariah 1 from verse 7 to chapter 6, verse 15, and then finally um, Zechariah uh, chapter 8, uh, chapter 7, and chapter 8. That threefold division. The second division of the book is also divided into two from Zechariah 8, uh, 9, verse 1 to 11, verse 17, and from chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 14, verse 21. Now this evening we come to the first major division and um, there are one or two general things that we ought to say. These eight chapters are all clearly dated and were given between the second and fourth years of Darius's reign, that is 520 to 518 B.C. All the prophecies, all the ministry of these eight chapters is directly related to the immediate matter at that time of rebuilding the temple and the recovery of the land. Some would see in these eight chapters only a symbolic predictive description of Zechariah's own time. In other words, all these eight chapters were complete, their fulfillment was completely exhausted in the actual time of Zechariah. There are others who feel that it was not only um, fulfilled uh, in Zechariah's own time, but it also looked on to the coming of Christ, so that we have um, a fulfillment first in a small way in the actual days of Zechariah and immediately following, and then farther on in the actual coming of the Lord. There are, are a third uh, group of scholars who believe that all that is contained in these eight chapters has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, it is nearly all, for the most part, in the future now, yet, in fact, to be 
um, fulfilled. The point seems to be that Zechariah's ministry, whilst related to the immediate events of his own day, had much more in it than merely that. The lessons in these eight chapters, especially the first six chapters, are clothed in figure and symbol. They are apocalyptic. That is, they are the revelation of the future, immediate or distant, in symbol and figure. The real point uh, in these chapters is that the lessons they have to give us are timeless. If you can get hold of that, you've got really to the heart of these chapters. The lessons they contain are in fact timeless. Uh, under under the, um, the symbolism uh, of these chapters, uh, the Lord reveals to us some lessons concerning his work, concerning his Christ, concerning his reign, uh, and so on, that are for all time. Now we come to the first actual division of the book. The lesson of past history. If you will turn to Zechariah chapter 1, it's a very, very short portion indeed. The first Six verses of Zechariah chapter 1. We have entitled this the lesson of past history. And these six verses are a prelude to Zechariah's following ministry. Though they are small, they are very important to an understanding of these chapters, these eight chapters. In fact, of the whole book. They were, it was given, this message was given on Sunday, we're not told which day, in the eighth month of Darius's second year. And now here's a point that's interesting. If you look at the chart that I gave you when we were studying Haggai in the first study in Zechariah, you will discover this message comes between the two messages contained in Haggai chapter 2, uh, between the one contained in uh, chapter 2 verse 1, uh, and to nine, and the other message from chapter, chapter two, verse ten onwards. Between those two, we um, have to insert this message of Zechariah. It is interesting that in Haggai two, verse seventeen, and the last part of the verse, we find an echo. These two men uh, work together. They were fellow workers. And it is interesting that here, in the last part, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord, is an echo of a message given a little earlier by Zechariah. Then again, it's interesting also when we uh, look at this uh, message to remember that the work of preparation was going on but the actual building of the temple had not started. And if you can throw your mind back to the book of Haggai to this point, you will remember there was a real possibility of them stopping altogether. They were very discouraged at that point. The older ones had been telling them, well, what's the point of it? It's not going to be anything like the former building. And there were some other considerations as well. The crops had been very poor, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the last day of it, and... 
uh, altogether they were rather despondent and depressed. So it seems that this message following a month after um, Haggai's came at a point when the people uh, were uh, despondent and there was a possibility of the work stopping. Now in this um, message of Zechariah, it all centers in a challenge, a challenging command and promise that the Lord gives. You will find it in verse 3. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Return unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that in, in one sentence you get twice the title of the Lord. Return unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. As if the Lord wants to emphatically underline that this is the key to everything. Now this is the importance of this little message that begins the book of Zechariah. Within these words, return unto me, and I will return unto you, you've got the theme of Haggai, the basic theme of Haggai's ministry. His real ministry was centered in Christ, not in things, not in truths, not in work, not in activity, not in aspects of the Christian life, but he, his, me, his main emphasis was on the Lord himself. His ministry can be summed up in this. Return unto me, says the Lord, and I will return unto you. If they will come back to him, he will come back to them. If they will abide in him, he will abide in them. It is simple as that. But you see, upon this simple lesson, everything depends. And if you read on in these chapters from verse 4 uh, to 6, you will discover that Zechariah enforces this challenge and promise of the Lord by a lesson from their history. And here we must underline the importance of understanding what we call sacred history. And I don't only mean sacred history in Scripture, I'm thinking of church history as well. It's very important for us to understand history. History has a habit of repeating itself, especially when its lessons are not learned. And one of the great um, objectives of Satan is to blind people to their history. He blinds us personally to our own history. Well, you know there are some people who make the same mistake, not once, but again and again and again and again. They're ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The enemy's job is to somehow blind us. And he does it corporately as well. When you think of the lessons of church history and the mistakes being made today by companies of Christians all over the world because they don't understand church history. They don't understand what the Lord is trying to teach through the history of his ways with his people over the centuries. Here then Zechariah brings to them a lesson from their history Oh, he's really saying to them, do you know why you've departed? Why, why there was an exile? Do you know why there's been all this breakdown, all this spiritual poverty, and so on? 
is because you departed from the Lord. And because when the prophets came to you and said, return unto the Lord, you would not return. It was the lesson of their history. It's the same with all of us as well. This is one of the most basic lessons that you and I can learn. God doesn't want us to return to things or to truths. He wants us to return to himself. It's a basic and vital lesson. And then you ought to remember that everything is bound up with the Lord. In returning to him, they have discovered the, the meaning of their own national existence, the meaning of their corporate existence, existence, the meaning of their own personal spiritual existence in returning to him and in his returning to them. They have got everything. When the Lord returns to them, then you see they have his presence, they have his sovereignty, they have his grace, they have his power. They have his purpose. When he returns, he brings all those things with him. It's important, therefore, for us to understand this. Really, Zechariah is saying to them, you've returned to the land. You've returned to the city. You've returned to the feast, the keeping of the feasts. You've returned to the law. You've returned to the house. You've even now returned to building. But the Lord says, that's not what he wants. Merely, have you returned to him? Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Then I would like you to note very clearly um, the result. In the last verse of this message, uh, verse 6, in the last part, it says, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. They repented and recognized and confessed. Now, who, to whom does this refer? Uh, our translators have had difficulty. To whom does it refer? Some would have it refer to the fathers. It's rather difficult to discover exactly how aware uh, in the immediately preceding history they did repent and confess and return. Um, or did it, does it refer to those that remnant that returned in 536 B.C.? Or is it a reference to them? When the, these people to whom uh, Zechariah addressed this message heard this word, they repented and said, this is true. We've learned a lesson of history. Well, it obviously cannot be the first. So I take it that it's either those who returned in 536 or those to whom Zechariah was uh, uh, speaking at that time. Whatever, the po whatever, whatever group it was, the point is this. They recognized the lesson. They had learnt their lesson. Now when we come to the next section, remembering that that now is a prelude to all that follow, follows, Zechariah has given us, as it were, uh, the key with which we can unlock uh, all these eight chapters and far beyond into the rest of the book. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. You'll find this little theme, this little... Um, 
uh, note recurring again and again and again uh, now through the rest of the book. When we come to the next section, from chapter 1, verse 7, to chapter 6, verse 15, we come to the section that is to do with these visions, and one of the most difficult in some ways of the book. I have entitled it, The Lord in His Sovereign Grace and Power Working Out His Purpose. That is the key to these um, uh, chapters. Now, just one or two general notes about um, these eight visions. From this verse 7 of chapter 1 right through to verse 15 of chapter 6, we have eight visions and one symbolic act. That is what these chapters consist of. Eight visions and one symbolic act. All the visions were given in the night, in one single night, the 24th of the 11th month, of the second year of Darius, two months after Haggai had concluded his, had given uh, his last recorded messages, concluded his ministry as we have it. The building work must have been going on apace in the midst probably of great conflict and temptation to uh, give up. Nevertheless, the people's attitude was right. And because the people's attitude was right, there was this ministry of hope and encouragement and promise. It's interesting to note the correspondence of the first and the eighth vision. Now, I leave that to you. You've got those visions, chapter 1, verse 8 to 17, and chapter 6, 1 to 8. If we ever could have that door open, it seems to be suddenly getting very hot. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, these two visions, the first and the eighth, correspond the one to the other. And they are, of course, the first and the, conclu the, the, the beginning and the con concluding vision. And both stress the sovereign activity of the Lord of hosts concerning his purpose. There seems to be also in the eight visions a progressive element. Um, there's a gradual unfolding of the Lord's mind. The visions, one, the first, second, and third vision are linked together. Then you have vision four and five linked together in a particular way. Then you have the vision five, uh, six, seven, and eight linked together. So the first three, the next two, and the last three are linked together into groups. They are all an, a progressive unfolding revelation. It's interesting also to note that there are eight visions. Now, you see, here we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, and every single aspect on the whole has some symbolic meaning. The Lord gave eight visions. And in scripture, the figure eight, the number eight, has meaning. It has sim symbolic meaning. Seven, as you know, means completeness or perfection. Eight is seven plus one. That is a new beginning. It is the figure of resurrection in scripture. The new, a new start. It's the figure of the new man, of the new creation. 
uh, and so on. It's always the beginning of something new. If you go through scripture right the way through, from beginning to end, you will always discover that the figure eight has this meaning. It's always linked with a new beginning. Eight people saved in the ark uh, to a new beginning. It's always the Lord Jesus rose on the eighth day, the first day of a new week, you see. It's always the same right the way through. And these eight visions constitute the Lord's revelation of a new beginning. He was starting all over again. Here was a resurrection. Something was being raised. Something that was coming out of the ashes of the exile and was going to be, as it were, raised up into newness of life. Now the first vision. The first vision is contained in chapter 1 from verse 8 to verse 17. I put on the board, because I haven't got space there to put it all, simply a description of each vision. Uh, this vision uh, is dis we've described as the angel of the Lord in the myrtle, amongst the myrtle trees. We have entitled it, if you wish to note it down, the Sovereign Lord returning to Jerusalem to accomplish his purpose. The Sovereign Lord returning to Jerusalem to accomplish his purpose. Now you'll have to listen very carefully if you're going to get anything out of these visions because if you just read them as they are in your, um, in your scriptures, you will probably get all the symbols and figures mixed up a little. We'll try to sort them out uh, step by step and then see what is the interpretation of them. The first three visions, as we've already said, are linked together. The first two are, are introductory and the third is a revelation of the greatness of the work. The first vision was of a clump of myrtle trees. And this clump of myrtle trees is in a glen, or uh, literally a shady bottom. It was just some uh, shady uh, uh, part at the bottom of the, uh, of the valley, somewhere around Jerusalem. Now, note very carefully, it's not in Jerusalem. Not in Jerusalem. The Lord has not returned actually to the... Uh, within the compass of Jerusalem, he's returned to the valley around Jerusalem. It's quite important. And um, somewhere in the valley that surrounds Jerusalem, there was this shady glen uh, with myrtle trees. Now, what are the figures in the vision? This, again, is very important. We have a figure of a man sitting on a red horse amongst the myrtle trees. And this man sitting on a red horse is identified, and this is important, as the angel of the Lord. In other words, the man on the red horse and the angel of the Lord are synonymous. If you look very carefully, um, you will discover verse 8, verse 9, uh, verse 8, comparing it with verse 10 and 11, you will discover that this is so. What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. The, the, verse 10, So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. 
And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. So the man riding upon a red horse in verse 8, standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, is the angel of the Lord. That is very important. This angel of the Lord, and we can't go into it too fully tonight, but this angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Sometimes it is simply and only an angel. At other times, it is the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord is a figure that often represents Christ. In his um, Old Testament uh, visitations, in this particular um, vision, it is obviously the Lord himself. Uh, later on, when we come to chapter 3, to the um, uh, some of the other uh, visions, we shall discover um, that it is, in fact, the Lord, Jehovah, who is the angel of the Lord. Then we have another figure. We have the man uh, who is the angel of the Lord sitting on a horse amongst the myrtle trees. Then we have another angel, an interpreting angel, who is always described in this vision as the angel who talked with me. That's the way that uh, um, Zechariah distinguishes him from the angel of the Lord. Then we have three horsemen. Now this is important because they are the, almost the key to the whole vision. One is on a red horse, chestnut-coloured horse. One is on a light brown horse, a sorrel horse. And the other is on a white horse. And these three, and this is important, are scouts. They are, in fact, the Lord's patrol of the earth. Now, you've got that again in verse um, uh, 10. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And verse 11, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. This word patrol is a military term, and it is the key to the whole vision. It is a, mil a, a military term in Hebrew denoting the scouts who flank an army. When a great army is on the move, these scouts were sent out to patrol before the army, to see the, the lie of the land, to see what the enemy was up to, to see whether in fact everything was going according to plan. As the, the armies moved, so these scouts went out ahead of them and quietly, silent, remember it was the night, silently they found out the lie of the land just to see how everything was. Now, we, we can come to the interpretation of the vision. What is this vision? What is the meaning of it? This whole vision breathes an atmosphere of suspense. When once it's understood, it's the most exciting vision. If I could only paint it for you so that you could get into the atmosphere of it, you really would be quite excited by it. You see, it's during the night, and something tremendous is about to happen. And poor Zechariah has suddenly been planted into the midst of this atmosphere of suspense. It's the middle of the night, everything's dark, 
and, and, and he suddenly feels something tremendous is about to happen. He hears someone riding on a horse, and he sees the angel of the Lord taking up his position in the midst of these myrtle trees in a glen. That glen is to become the headquarters of the Lord of hosts. It is the advanced headquarters of an army. The Lord has taken up his headquarters. Then as he waits and watches, he sees patrols, the scouts, coming up quietly and silently, reporting back to HQ. What are they reporting back? They're telling what they found. Everything's all right. Everything's quiet. Everything's going according to plan. What is the idea behind it, you see? Well, this is the whole... The Lord of hosts, it's the title. The armies of heaven are marshaled, and they're waiting. And they're waiting for the great onslaught which, which at any moment is going to be made on the adversary. Everything is waiting quietly. The scouts have gone out. They're reporting that it's all according to plan. Everything's ready for the onslaught. They're, it's all unsuspecting. The enemy is going to be caught red hand. So uh, you find in this uh, sort of uh, divine uh, headquarters in the myrtle trees, you've got the Lord himself at the head of the armies of heaven. What a thrilling vision this is at the beginning of this book. You see, the whole thing is, listen, something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. It's not happening so much to do with men. No, no, it's in the invisible, the hosts of God are all ready and waiting. Here, the divine headquarters have been set up. Where? Not in Jerusalem yet, because the onslaught's going to be concerning Jerusalem. It's going to be concerning the rebuilding of the house and the rebuilding of the city and the recovery of the land. So the headquarters have been taken up outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Al. Now everything is uh, waiting for the go-ahead. Everything's ready for the great onslaught. Then we have the most wonderful revelation of the undying passion of the Lord for Jerusalem, his church. Verse 14. <clears throat> so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. Jealous with jealousy, exceeding jealous for Jerusalem. Why is the Lord amongst the myrtle trees? They are amongst the most fragrant of trees, growing sometimes up to 18 feet. In the Bible, it usually the myrtle tree usually symbolizes peace and joy. It was the tree, boughs and branches of which were used for the booths in the Feast of Tabernacles. And it symbolized peace and joy, fulfillment, completion, satisfaction. But here it seems to denote the Lord amongst his chastened and purified people. See, it's not, it's not the oak, it's not the cedar, it's not the palm tree, all of which have symbolic meaning in scripture. This is the lowly tree. His people are despised and broken. And but to the Lord, there's a fragrance now about the remnant. They have been purged of that haughty, proud, arrogant spirit of which I think it was Micah had said, the Lord would root it out. It had gone. And now instead there was the fragrance of humility and meekness. They were a poor, chastened, dependent people. 
Where has the Lord's headquarters been set up? In the midst of them. He's going to direct operations from the midst of such a poor and afflicted remnant. And then, whatever we may feel about the myrtle trees and what they mean, whether they do mean anything here, and I'm sure they do, as it is apocalyptic, certainly we can say this, the Lord has returned to Jerusalem with that's the point. He says so here. He has returned at the head of the, of, the, of the armies of heaven. His house, he says, is going to be built, and Jerusalem, and the cities of the land. That you'll get in verse 16 and verse 17. Nothing is now going to thwart the Lord. He's on the move. That is the meaning of this vision. It's very interesting to note, just as we leave it, that the temple was built four years later in fulfillment of this vision. The city was built in 445 BC, 70 years later after the giving of this vision. The cities of the land were rebuilt during the Maccabean period, the Hasmonean princes, that is roughly from 165 to 37 BC. That is 400 years later. And there are some who believe that in this phrase, the Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. You have the fulfillment of, Zion, of, of Isaiah's prophecy when he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And of the godly Simeon who said that the comfort of Israel, the consolation of Israel, had appeared amongst his people. So you see, here you have a wonderful vision. The Lord now is starting a new phase which is going to carry them right through to the actual fulfillment of his purpose in the Old Testament. It's going to see the Messiah. The house is going to be built. The city is going to be built. The cities are going to be built, and the Messiah is going to return. What a wonderful vision. The armies of heaven are on the move. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our eyes were opened? You know, we smile at the hymn like the one we've sung together. But if only our eyes could be opened to see what goes on in the unseen. What a comfort it would be if we could see that when the Lord's time has come, the armies of heaven are on the move. The second vision we find is a short one from in the same chapter, from verse 18 to 21. Uh, we have described it as the four horns and the four craftsmen. And I have entitled it the defeat of all opposing forces. The defeat of all opposing forces. In this vision, we see first four horns. Now, get the atmosphere again. It's still in the night. The other vision fades, and as, almost evidently as soon as it fades, another vision come, looms up in that. And suddenly Zechariah sees looming up out of the darkness four great horns. Now in scripture, horns symbolize power and strength. They are quite, uh, used quite a lot in apocalyptic literature. You get them a number of times. Uh, used by Daniel and others. And the figure four, the number four, always denotes in scripture worldwideness. 
universality, four winds, four corners, so on and so forth, you see, four seasons, etc., etc. And here you have denoted the, or, or symbolized, the forces which have scattered, which have scattered and divided and defeated the people of God. Then you must um, also, perhaps uh, we ought to say, that some believe that these four horns are to be identified with Daniel's vision of the image and of the beasts, which are, if you look in those chapters, you will find are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. However, I personally um, feel that the meaning of these four horns is more general than particular. They really are symbolic, not probably of particular world powers or those forces which have always opposed God's children and God's work, but more they are, as it were, just a, a symbol of all those general anti-God forces who at any time in history have opposed God's work and overcome God's people. Then, as Daniel, as Zechariah sees these four horns looming up, he saw, sees a most strange counterpart, an opposing force. And these four are craftsmen. Now, the word craftsman is better than uh, the authorized version or the revised version because the, in one it is carpenters, in the other it is smiths, and both are really too specific. The idea is just craftsmen. Now, this is important. These craftsmen both frighten away and defeat the four horns. And that, thus sort of clearing the way for the completion of God's work. These four horns are the things that have stopped the fulfillment of God's purpose. Now these four craftsmen come up and destroy the four horns and thus make a way clear for the Lord to go right on to the fulfillment of his purpose. Now, when it is understood, this vision becomes a remarkably encouraging one. The fact that craftsmen are used, uh, are, are, are used as symbolizing um, the, the power that defeats the horns. And mark you, there is no ordinary or normal connection between horns and craftsmen on the whole. It, the, the fact that craftsmen are symbolized is undoubtedly a reference to the rebuilding of the temple. That's the whole point. You see, the whole point in this vision is that God says these forces have stopped, are stopping this work. All right. He himself is going to meet those mighty opposing forces with still mightier forces, which will not only fling them back into their own domain, but which will carry God's work of rebuilding to its conclusion. So this, this vision becomes a glorious one. Those forces which have frustrated the Lord and which have paralyzed God's work are, are going to be not only overcome by still greater divine forces, but those divine forces are going to act 
actually bring God's work to a conclusion. When we come to the third vision in Zechariah chapter 2, the whole chapter from verse 1 to verse 13, we have described it as the man with the measuring line. And I have entitled it The Immeasurable Greatness of God's Work. In the first vision, we saw the Lord returned at the head of the armies of heaven. In the second, we saw the defeat of all his uh, enemies. Now, our hearts are lifted onto a new level altogether. We are shown something of the greatness of this work that God is doing. In this vision, we see, now listen carefully, we see a man with a measuring line. In, uh, if you remember, the Lord had said in chapter 1, verse 16, in the first vision, that a measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Now Zechariah sees in this third vision in the night a man with a measuring line. So he undoubtedly connected with the vision that he'd only seen a little while before. Here is the man now. He's going out with the measuring line. The Lord said Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Evidently the house has been rebuilt. This is the city now that is in view. In the, we see this man with the... In this vision we see a man with a measuring line and two angels. One is the interpreting angel, uh, described as the angel who talked with me, and the other is just another angel. Who is the young man of verse 4? Verse 4, we um, uh, read this. The angel said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in it. Who is the young man? Is it Zechariah? Or is it the man with the measuring line? There was great controversy over this point. Most scholars believe that it is the latter. It's the man with the measuring line. There are some, however, who still believe that it was Zechariah who is mentioned here. I think if you read it very carefully, especially in one of the more uh, clear modern versions, you will see that I think the general weight is on the side that this young man is the man with the measuring line. Now, the whole point is this. You see, the future greatness of Jerusalem is so, so enormous that it cannot be measured. It cannot be measured. It's interesting, you see, because in other visions, in other books in different parts of the Bible, we have got men or angels actually measuring the city of God or the house of God. In Ezekiel 40, we find someone going right through the whole city from the house and every other part, measuring it. In Revelation 11.1, uh, yes, I think it's 11.1, yes, we have another one who's told to rise up and measure the temple of God. He does so. In Revelation 21, verse 15, we see another man with a golden measuring rod who is measuring the city. You see, it is interesting. In other visions, we have those who are measuring it. What is the idea in their measuring? They are really explaining to us everything has got to be of God. 
It's all got to be of God and it's all got to be according to his mind. So they are measuring it to see whether it measures up to Christ, whether it really is Christ, whether it is according to God's plan and purpose. That's the idea usually in apocalyptic literature behind measuring. Now this vision has the exact opposite. It tells us another, it gives us another idea. It seems to speak of the immeasurable greatness of God's work. So great that it is beyond measuring. You've got a little bit of it, you know, in the last chapters of the Bible, when we're told that the city, its length and its breadth are as great as its height, which is impossible. You see, the idea is that the city is a huge cube. 12, I think it's 1,200 stadia or 12,000 stadia long and that way and up, you see. One huge great cube, it's an impossible city. The idea is that this is divine. It is immeasurable in actual fact. You can measure it according to divine standards, but you can't measure it according to human standards. Now, you know, the Lord is to be both walls and glory in this work. Verse 5, he says... Um, she don't measure it, he tells him, for I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory thereof. It's interesting to note that even in Zechariah's time, this vision, this message was known to be a spiritual lesson, because in fact they did go and build walls. And the Lord had said just in a vision earlier that a measuring line would be stretched forth over Jerusalem. It was known even then to be a spiritual lesson, you see. Some people have got the idea that all God's people in the Old Testament were sort of dumb uh, and dim in every way, you know, couldn't understand anything but that utmost simplicity. It was obvious that they understood even this message uh, in a spiritual context, spiritual way. They did build the walls. We've got the whole book of Nehemiah um, about the battle to build those walls in spite of what is said here about the Lord being the walls and the defence of the city and therefore they mustn't measure it. No, the idea was a spiritual one. You see, the Lord had predicted that a measuring line would be stretched forth over Jerusalem. But he meant he was talking about something other than the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly city. He was speaking of something that was going to grow out of it, that was in, as it were, the succession, uh, which, which was going to be immeasurable because of its greatness. The remnant undoubtedly did not uh, recognize anything more than local and national considerations in rebuilding. Zechariah points out that it is related to eternal issues, Messiah and his church, whose infinite greatness is immeasurable. It reminds me where it says in Ephesians 3, and those last verses of the chapter there, when it speaks of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth, and then it goes on, that ye might be filled to all the fullness of God. Can you measure the fullness of God? He is infinite. No beginning, no end. There are no boundaries to God. He is absolutely infinite, inexhaustible, incomprehensible fullness. That ye might be filled to all the fullness of God. Why, that means that when we come to those last chapters of the Bible, we are launched out into the fullness of God. Never to get to the other side, if you see what I mean, speaking of it as a child. To be launched out into the infinite 
boundless fullness of God, ye might be filled to all the fullness. Doesn't that speak of, of ever-growing capacity for the fullness of the Lord and yet never reaching the end? Ye may be filled to all the fullness of God. Here you've got immeasurable. You can't measure it. You can't analyze it. You can't somehow categorize it. No, he, the Lord says to the, to the angel, stop that young man, tell him to stop. It's no point measuring this. This is infinite. This is immeasurable. I say it's really wonderful. A description of Christ and his body. The fullness of him who filleth all in all. It says in Ephesians 1, 23. We have here a wonderful description of Zion's future glory and greatness. Look at it. From verse 6 onwards. She is the apple of God's eye. This word apple is pupil. She is the pupil of God's eye. The very pupil, the most precious part of our body for sight. The pupil of the eye. Zion is like the pupil of God's eye. There's something marvellous about that. He is in the midst of her. He will be her glory and her, her defence. Verse 5. He will be her greatness and her attractiveness. Verse 11. Her greatness and her attractiveness. He will in her draw the nations to himself. Nations will come unsaved Gentiles in their millions to be joined to the Lord in that day. And in being joined to the Lord, joined to Zion, she will be immeasurable. If those people of that day could have really understood what Zechariah was saying, could see all of us Gentiles flung all over, all, from all parts of the world, joined to the Lord, part of that city with them, they would understand the immeasurable greatness of the work they were in there. They were in something that was going to bring the Messiah in. And not only the Messiah was going to bring the salvation to the, to the ends of the earth. Immeasurable and infinite. So the Lord warns all those still in Babylon in verse 6 and 7. He warns all of them to escape to Zion so that they may participate in the present hard work of rebuilding in order that they may have part in the great and glorious future. He says, get out of Zion. Get, get out of Babylon. Escape to Zion. Zion is despised at present. The work is hard. The conflict centered there. But get out of Babylon. Get to Zion. If you want to, be, you want to have part in that great and glorious destiny, see that you're there. It's interesting to note the last verse, verse 13. It's almost humorous. We could translate it Shh, the Lord's getting up. That is the word. Shh, the Lord's getting up. What, a, what an amazing little insight uh, into the relationship of Zechariah to the Lord. Shush, he says, be quiet. <coughs> Father's getting up. He's getting up in, out of his holy habitation. Or we can put it another way. Be quiet. Shh, the Lord's at work. The atmosphere of these visions is quite exciting in that way. The thought is, the Lord's getting up now. He's stirring. He's been asleep. He's allowed things to slide. Now he's getting up. He's shaking himself. He's, as it were, getting the sleep out of his eyes. 
and he's going to he's going to start now on this great job and this work is immeasurable it is so great we come to the fourth vision Zechariah chapter 3 the whole chapter uh, we describe this as the acquittal of the high priest or the triumphant grace of God in his service now there is one or two things there are one or two things here we ought especially to note because this vision in chapter 3 and the next one in chapter 4 are very intimately linked with each other with these next two visions the fourth and the fifth we come to the heart of the matter not only numerically but spiritually they are most important to understand they deal with the service of God's house, which to God is the important thing. He hasn't got a house, you know, just for the fun of having a house. Hasn't got a church just for the sake of having a church. The point is service. That's why it's a city at the end of the Bible, you know. A bride and a city. <coughs> service. So, uh, no point in thinking that we're just going to lie around doing nothing in eternity to come. There's no greater fallacy. That's going to be the beginning of real service. This is only just a primary training school down here. The service that is yet to come. Now these two chapters deal with the service of God's house, the ministry of God's people, the function of the church. The service of God's house is seen in a twofold way. In the first vision, in this fourth vision, it's seen through the symbolism of the high priest. In the fifth vision, uh, the next one, it's seen through the symbolism of the candlestick. In this one, it is Joshua the high priest who represents the people before God. In the next, it is Zerubbabel the governor who represents God to the people. Two sides of service. You got it? Two sides of service. One representing people before God, the other representing God before people. Two fold service. One is the high priesthood with all that it means of intercession, communion, mediation, intimacy. The other is the candlestick on earth, shedding light like a beacon, throwing its light into dark places, revealing the Lord, manifesting his character and his purpose. These two sides, you see, priesthood and kingship, two sides of service. In scripture, these two sides are always important, priesthood and kingship. Then we see, too, that this service um, is represented in these two visions, God-ward, service God-ward, the high priest, and service man-ward, the candlestick. There are two problems which could stop the completion of the work. The first is God's problem supremely. What is it? The sinful uncleanness of his people. The second is man's problem. The mountainous complexity of the difficulty that's in the way. Both problems are answered by God himself. The first by his grace, cleansing and covering because of a crucified Christ. The second, by his power, transforming and enabling because of a poured out Holy Spirit. You see, God gives an answer to both. The first, 
is a crucified Christ. The second is a poured out Holy Spirit. Now this is very interesting. In our Godward aspect of service, we need a crucified Christ. In our manward aspect of service, we need a poured out Holy Spirit. In our high priestly ministry, our priestly ministry, in the presence of God, we need to know the Lamb slain. In our testimony and witness and sir, in that way, service amongst the people of, of this world, we need to know the poor out Holy Spirit. Two sides. An answer. An answer. Because the poor, within, within the slain lamb, there is covering and cleansing. And in the poured out Holy Spirit, there is enabling and power. In both visions, as a result, the top stone is fitted and the work is completed. These two visions undoubtedly prefigure Christ as both priest and king, the servant of the Lord. Christ is the servant of the Lord. And in himself, he combines both the great ideals of service, priesthood and kingship. Some... Uh, um, I think we should also remember that in prefiguring Christ, um, the, these two visions in prefiguring Christ as high priest and as king, we see him as the one who perfectly without sin represents us before God. And we see him on the other hand as the one who perfectly represents God to us. Both sides. The one who will not only build the house, but who will sit on the throne and bear the glory. In the last symbolic act, at the end of these eight visions, this whole uh, um, idea is brought into clear focus. And we see the Lord as the sum of true service. Now, I think we've just got time to look at this fourth vision, and then we shall have to uh, finish this evening. In this fourth vision, we are in the presence of God. Look, if you'd like to take this chapter, chapter 3. We are in the presence of God in this vision, whether in heaven or on earth or in the future rebuilt temple, we don't know. We see the angel of the Lord, who is obviously Christ. If you read verse 1, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Then look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The angel of the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You get it? This is an obvious reference. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, now only the Lord could say this, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It is the Lord identified with the angel of the Lord, Christ. Then we have in this vision Joshua the high priest, who is about to perform his duties, but he is dressed in filthy robes. And then we have Satan, the accuser. Now, to, the, to get to the point. The setting of this vision is a Jewish trial. With the presiding judge, the angel of the Lord, facing him, the accused, Joshua, 
the high priest, and, as always in a Jewish trial, at the right hand of the accused, the prosecuting accuser. So it is the setting of a trial. That's important. The problem is supremely God's problem. What is it? The sinful uncleanness of his own people, represented in Joshua. How can God allow this work with such glorious and eternal issues to go on? Satan, as the accuser, has found genuine ground upon which to fasten in the presence of the Lord. And he's exposing this ground. What is it? The actual and real sinful uncleanness of God's people. Satan knows when he's onto a good thing. He's not lying in the presence of we can't. He's got hold of something which is absolutely true, absolutely genuine, and he's tearing it out in the presence of God. Now, says Satan, you see, you are not going to, be, you are not going to get around this. I'm not going to let you bypass this. See? You've got to abandon this work. You've got to abandon the whole project of rebuilding or recovery. The people are unclean. There's too much sin. They're so prone to sin. They're so, so wayward, so ready to go back. Uncleanness seems to be in the very atmosphere. Do you know it's not only uh, God's problem. Not only God's problem. It's amazing how, until the light shines into our hearts, how we can live with sin. How happily sometimes we can live with sin. In that sense, it is God's problem more than ours. Why did God lay down the li his life in the person of his son? For a world that really wasn't so bothered? wants to be happy, yes. it wants to find an answer, but it's not so bothered really about sin. That's God's problem. God's problem is the, is the problem of sinful uncleanness, you see. Nevertheless, it is our problem when we get to know the Lord. And you know, there, there is no more paralyzing sense than the sense of uncleanness in the work and service of God. Once a person feels they're unclean or that there's something attaching to them, they become paralyzed. They can no longer serve the Lord with joy. They can't serve him spontaneously. They can't contribute anymore. They can't really take part in the work of God in the same full, joyful, wholehearted way. It paralyzes them. Satan knows that. He knows it only too well. He's not only our accuser before God. He comes into all our hearts and if we haven't got our eye upon what Christ has done, then he accuses and he accuses and he accuses all the time. Some of us think it's the Holy Spirit when it's not. The Holy Spirit, you know, is the comforter. Satan is the accuser. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside. Satan is the one who's the adversary, who actually exposes all the time. Now, you see... We've got a problem then. It's supremely God's problem, but it's our problem too. Note now how the Lord answers this problem. First, his sovereign choice of the church. Verse 2. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't that a wonderful idea? The Lord's answer to Satan is, as at this trial... I have chosen them. That's the first thing. 
God's sovereign choice of his church. Secondly, his sovereign salvation. Listen, is not this a brand plucked from the burning? Isn't that who else could have got us out of a fire, out of an inferno, when we were an actual charred, burning brand? Only God. His sovereign choice of Jerusalem is his answer. His sovereign salvation of his own. Why, you and I, we are brands plucked from the burning. Why? Because of the sovereign choice of God. But there's something else. God doesn't stop just there. He knows Satan will get him on this. He goes further. The complete, absolute removal of their sin from them. Listen, in verse 4, he says, Remove, remove the filthy garments from him. Isn't that lovely? Remove them from him. Take them right away. Take them right away. Take them out of sight. Get rid of them. Destroy them. The fourth thing the complete and glorious clothing given to them. In verse 4, verse 5, I will clothe you with rich apparel, put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him with garments. Here's the answer of the Lord. I have sovereignly chosen them. I have sovereignly, sovereignly saved them. I have removed their sin from them. Put it right away. I have clothed them in glorious garments of salvation. And now, here's the wonderful thing, because Satan knows what he's doing. You know, he, he's getting at service. See, he wants the whole thing cut off. Now the Lord says, the result is the acceptance of their service in the house. Listen, verse 6 and verse 7. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, have charge of my court, and listen, I will give you the right of access to them among those who are standing here. Isn't that wonderful? The right of immediate access into the presence of the Lord, the possibility of ruling in his house, of having charge of his courts. You see, service. Rule, have charge, right of access. Isn't that an answer? What a wonderful answer. But just wait. How can the Lord actually do this? Cannot Satan accuse him of unrighteous compromise? Can't he accuse him of partiality? Of something that, that savours of this world? Of, of a readiness to just overlook sin because he sort of rather likes us and wants to, to sort of choose us, select us? Now see the unveiling of Christ as the basis of God's sovereign choice and salvation and covering and service. And here's the point. God makes Christ the basis of his sovereign choice, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Salvation, how are we saved? Behold the Lamb of God who beareth away the sin of the world. Covering? How are we covered? Him who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Where? In him. Service? How can we serve the Lord? We can only serve God through Christ. It's in his name 
precept. In him. If we abide in him, he shall bring forth much fruit. So you see, here you have the ground of God's, for God's answering. The ground for his sovereign choice, his sovereign salvation, his removal of sin, his covering of us, and for his acceptance of our service. In the last few verses uh, in this chapter, you have a wonderful unveiling of Christ. Joshua, you see, in verse um, 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, they are men that are assigned. Now this Joshua in Greek is Jesus. I think you all know that. It means he who shall save, he who is the Savior, or he who is the Lord is their salvation. The Lord is their Savior. He and the priests around him are literally sign men or type men. In other words, they are typical of Christ. The priesthood, they were priests around the high priest, and they are typical. They prefigure Christ. Joshua is the type of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. He is Jesus. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then secondly, you will see in verse 8, For behold, I will bring forth my servant. Now this term, my servant, is a messianic title. You will find it a lot in scripture. Two examples, Isaiah 42, verse 1, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold my servant. So on and so on. Okay. Behold, says Zechariah, my servant. What is this mean, combining the ideal both of priesthood and kingship, Christ. He is the servant of the Lord. And then the branch. My servant, the branch. This word is very interesting. It has no article in Hebrew. It just means shoot or sprout or bud. And the idea is he is the living one. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who is eternal life. He's always new. He's always sprouting. He's always branching. Do you understand? He's always shooting. Cut it back and he shoots out again. He buds again. The branch. The one who is the branch. You'll find it if you want to look these up. Isaiah 11 verse 1. Isaiah 4, chapter 4 verse 2. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Jeremiah 33 verse 15. It's a messianic title. The branch. And then he is the stone. You see, the seven eyes denote divine and perfect intelligence. Now, where are these seven eyes, these all-seeing eyes of God? Are they in the stone or are they upon the stone? The Hebrew could mean either. The idea of the Lord being the stone denotes the dwelling place of God. He is both the foundation and the top stone, as well as the material of all the other living stones. But what about this stone which has the seven eyes, you see? Does it mean that it is the intelligence of God in Christ? Or does it mean that God's eye is always on Christ as the basis, the beginning, and the ending of everything? He doesn't keep his eye on you or me in this building work. In this, he keeps his eye on Christ as the basis. And Christ is the beginning. And Christ is the energy, the light and Christ as the conclusion, the end. It could be either. Both are wonderful, aren't they? The stone. And then it speaks of the engraving of God. 
he will engrave it with I will engrave it with graving. The idea again is that this stone, this top stone, was a very heavily uh, carved stone, usually a, an ornate stone. The idea was that it, it was the last put into place, and it, it spoke of the completion and conclusion of the whole work. It, it sort of it typified the whole. And the idea here again is of, of Christ as the top stone made beautiful through suffering, through all that he has gone through, made perfect, it is in Scripture, through suffering, the top stone, the one who's going to come back from heaven to complete the work. So you see, Jesus, God's servant, the branch, the stone, will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That's God's final answer to Satan. In one single day, the all iniquity will be removed by this one who's coming. This is a most remarkable prediction. So we see the triumphing grace of God in his service. Nothing can now stand in the way. Satan has tried to get God to abandon the whole project, but God has an answer. He has Christ, a crucified now, you know, many of us are suffering from just that. We don't know enough of the crucified Christ, the Lamb slain. Whenever you and I come into the presence of God, our only basis, our only basis is Christ crucified. Upon that basis, upon that basis, God weeps us. Experience the grace of God. So if you and I want to know something of the service of God, it, it's God-ward aspect, intercession, communion, coming into the presence of the Lord without that awful sense of uncleanness, being able just to enjoy the Lord. We've got to know a crucified Christ. We've got to know the Lamb slain as our foundation, as the one who has in himself removed our sin, the one who in himself is our righteousness. Otherwise, the enemy will paralyze us in, the, in the, our service in God's house all the way. Well, may the Lord just help us in this.